This week, on a special episode of Crossing the Lane Lines. And after all this was done, one of the crew members said, well, I'm going to go for a swim. So he strips down to his uh, trunks that he had underneath his pants, and he jumps off the boat. And me being a 13-year-old, I didn't know how to swim. You know, I grew up in a family that no one knew how to swim. So I run off to the side, and I'm just watching him do the crawl, backstroke, and breaststroke, and a little butterfly. And he's going out there for about, I'd say, 15, 20 minutes. And then he climbs back up on the boat, and he's toweling off. And I walk up to him very sheepishly, and I said, oh, wow, that's really cool. I was wondering if you could teach me how to do that. And this guy comes over to me, and he puts his arm around me, and he laughs, and he says, ah, kid. Black people don't swim. I will be interviewed by the co-host of the podcast, The End of Sport, about my swim journey, the impetus for creating Crossing the Lane Lines, my ongoing frustration with USA Swimming, and a brief history of Blacks in America and a broader Black diaspora about our relationship to aquatics and the challenges that we still face in the 21st century. Stay tuned. Najee Ali is the producer and host of Crossing the Lane Lines, a podcast that highlights the achievements, struggles, and activism in, on, or near the water for Black folk. He is a long-distance open-water swimmer who swims year-round and also without a wetsuit, which is incredible, in San Francisco Bay, as well as the Pacific Ocean. He is also a total immersion swim coach who specifically teaches black and brown children and adults how to swim at whatever cost they can afford. Najee invited me for his podcast and or interviewed me for his podcast in April 2020 to talk about my co-author piece with Cleet Keller and US swimming, USA Swimming's white supremacy culture. And so this is sort of a pod swap, and we are just so supremely excited to have him on the end of sport. Najee, thank you so much for joining us today and welcome to the show. Thank you, Johanna, and as well as you, Derek. I'm really happy to be here. Um, let me just say before we get started that I really appreciate The End of Sport. It's one of my favorite podcasts. I listen to it each time an episode comes out, and I've learned so much about so many different facets in other sports, but also how you all are pushing the dial of trying to hold the sports world accountable, especially in light of their over-gluttonous consumption of capitalism and how they use their athletes. Absolutely. And and I think it just, you know, it's been such a, a wild ride over the last year and obviously impacted di- different groups so, so differently. And, and I think it, it's instructive to look back on the last year, um, especially in light of, of George Floyd's mur- murder and just sort of see, you know, how much has the, how much has the needle been pushed? Um, I think is a question that, that a lot of us are asking right now, like, so where are we one year, you know, one year plus out of, of COVID, but also one year and barely a day after George, George Floyd's murder. Um, so thank you for sharing that. Um, and so before we dive into the podcast, we'd really love to hear about the role that swimming and aquatics broadly have played in your life. And I understand from prior conversations with you that you uh, very frustratingly and and sadly and enraging really um, encountered white supremacy in the water world at a very young age. Now, to the extent that you feel comfortable, can you explain how you got into swimming in terms of when and where and how? 
And to what extent were you aware of any opportunities to learn how to swim, swim competitively, to surf, et cetera? I grew up in San Diego, California. Um, I was born in Philadelphia, but I grew up out here in California. My father was in the military. And I grew up out here, but he left us pretty early on at a young age, about eight years, eight years, eight, eight years old. And so my mom was raising myself and my older sister, and she was working several jobs. And so when I was about 13, you know, like any other young boy, I was, you know, playing Little League. I was running around playing, you know, football with my friends or baseball or what have you, basketball. And, you know, I was just goofing off, you know, gone out until from sunup to sundown. So in the middle of the summer, my mom came to me and said, hey, look, there is this program for inner city kids, which I was because I lived in the inner city of San Diego. And it was called Reggie. I forget what the acronym, you know, means, but that was what it was called. And she said, you're going to go down there and you're going to get a job. And I said, I'm not, I'm not getting no job. I, I'm having too much fun playing with my friends. She said, if you plan on living another day, you will go to that place and get a job. So my mother was a woman who grew up in the Jim Crow South. And when she said, if you plan on living another day, you better start thinking out that you need, this is not open for a negotiation. You're going to do what you're um, told. So begrudgingly, I went down and I filled out the little mini application. And I was hoping I can get a job as a custodian or maybe mowing, mowing lawn, something that I was familiar with. None of the jobs that I wanted were there. In fact, there was only one job that was left. And that was working with a marine biologist at Scripps Institute of Oceanography in La Jolla, California, which is about a 45-minute bus drive from my house. So my mom said, you're taking a job. So the following week, I had to get up early in the morning and get on the bus and go down there and meet this gentleman. And he was a very lovely man. He was really a wonderful person. He taught me so much about marine life about sea tortoises and dolphins and seals, jellyfish, and just the whole gamut. I learned so much from him, and he was so patient and kind and explaining everything to me. And I'd say about a month after I was on the job, he asked me if I wanted to go out into the ocean to catch albacore tuna to bring back in captivity. Up until that time, which was the uh, mid-'70s, it had never been done before. And so I said, sure, yeah, I'd love to do that. He says, well, you have to get permission from your mother first. And let's see if that can happen. So I went home and I told her what was happening. She said, of course, that's a good opportunity for you to learn more. So a couple of days later, we got on this boat and we went out. And I remember it very distinctly because that day was very hot and the water was very still. There was no wind whatsoever. And we went out about 20 miles offshore. And I don't know if you've ever swam out in open water 20 miles offshore, but it's rare when it'll be fairly flat 20 miles offshore. Um, I didn't even feel small rollers is what we call them, the swell. There was hardly any of that. It was just literally one of the most beautiful days I'd ever seen. So we ended up catching these two albacore tuna, and they put them in these special tanks that they had uh, constructed for this task. And after all this was done, one of the crew members said, well, I'm going to go for a swim. So he strips down to his uh, trunks that he had underneath his pants, and he jumps off the boat. And me being the 13-year-old, I didn't know how to swim. You know, I grew up in a family that no one knew how to swim. So I run off to the side, 
And I'm just watching him do the crawl, backstroke and breaststroke and a little butterfly. And he's going out there for about, I'd say, 15, 20 minutes. And then he climbs back up on the boat and he's toweling off. And I walk up to him very sheepishly and I said, oh, wow, that's really cool. I was wondering if you could teach me how to do that. And this guy comes over to me and he puts his arm around me and he laughs. And he says, ah, kid, black people don't swim. And everybody on the boat laughed. And as a 13-year-old, you don't want to feel that you're the butt of the joke. So I kind of like laughed and whatever. And walked off and the rest of the trip, I just sat off to the side, just looking out over the water as we uh, eventually started heading back in. And you have to remember, I absolutely love the ocean. Even as a young kid, I absolutely love it. I can literally sit on a bench in front of the ocean and stare for hours, not move, just stare at it and just watch it. My wife will attest to this. There was one time we were just sitting there when we were down in a place called Pacifica, California, which is not too far from San Francisco. And we go down there at least a few times a year just to get away. And she has to pry me away from it because I can just be transfixed, let alone if I get a chance to swim in it. But back then I didn't know how to swim. So I would just stare out at it and I would just, I would be so hungry to want to learn how to swim. I was so desperate to want to know how to do that and I couldn't do it. And this man literally crushed my, my chances I fought to learn how to swim. I never brought that situation up to anybody, including my mom or my sister. And I never said anything to anyone for 30 years about that incident. Literally for 30 years, I never said anything. Fast forward to 2008, and it's the summer during the Beijing Olympics. It's night number two of Phelps' quest to obtain eight gold medals. He had won the men's four by 100 meter um, individual medley. And now he was going for the four, or, I'm sorry, he won the 400 meter medley. Now he's going for the, um, the four by 100 meter relay. And everyone was talking about the French were going to dominate. There is no way in the world that the U.S. could beat the French. And so I'm watching this, and I'm watching him jump in, and then I'm watching Garrett Weber Gale jump in. And as interesting as that was, I was literally riveted when the third leg of that relay came in, when Cullen Jones jumped into the water. This black man, this incredibly fast human being, just knifing through the water. And watching him doing his best to try to keep up. And he's being passed a little bit by the third leg of the French. And then, of course, Jason Lezak jumps in and comes back and wins it for the United States. And there was just this incredible thing. They, they broke the world record. It was just an, the most dramatic finish I'd ever seen in any kind of a sporting relay ever. And at that moment, I determined that I was going to learn how to swim. So the next day, I Googled and I found a person in a place called Walnut Creek, California, and I talked with him on the phone. And I said, I want to learn how to swim. He said, yeah, come on out here. I'll teach you. And he was a very nice man, and he taught me the rudimentary skills of swimming. But I didn't feel a strong connection with him. So I looked for someone else, and I found this woman who worked with another woman called Melon Dash who teaches adults who are afraid of water. Now, I'm not afraid of water, as I said, but I thought, well, maybe I am or something. Maybe, maybe that's the key that I need to start from this beginning. So she also worked with me for a while and she was very kind and she realized that I wasn't afraid, but I just needed to learn how to swim. 
and she deals mostly with people who have an absolute, you know, phobia of water. And so she suggested that I try total immersion swimming. And I said, total immersion swimming, what's, what's that all about? She says, you should Google it, check it out. So I did. And this man named Terry Laughlin had invented this way of swimming, or at least not invented a way of swimming, but how to teach swimming. And everything that he had said, both on the YouTube videos that I'd seen, as well as when I got his book, resonated with me. And as luck would have it, there was going to be a workshop that his organization, Total Immersion, was going to give in San Francisco. So I saved up my pennies, and I signed up for the workshop. And the person that was teaching that workshop was his eldest daughter, and who was the first Total Immersion coach, Fiona Laughlin. And she's the person that taught me to swim. It was a two-day workshop, and it was just, I was just blown away that it was that easy to learn. And at the end of the workshop, she asked me, what do you plan on doing? And I said, well, I'm going to go back to the pool and work on these drills that you taught me and work on my whole stroke before I can try to get better. She says, do you want to do masters? I said, no, I don't really have an interest in masters. Said, do you want to compete? I says, no, I'm not a, you know, a person who's really into competition. He says, what do you want to do? And I pointed towards the ocean from where we were doing the workshop, which is that San Francisco state. And I says, I want to swim out there. That is the only reason why I ever wanted to learn how to swim. I've always loved the open water. I want to swim out there. So I found a woman who taught open water workshops, and I joined her and her group, thinking that I needed to wear a wetsuit when you did this. And for the first week or so, she was teaching me. Her name was Leslie Thomas. She was a really kind and gentle person. And I was getting frustrated with the wetsuit because it was so constricting. It felt like it was in, you know, another person's skin. I just couldn't get my mobility, and I was really frustrated. So a couple of days later, after one of these uh, workouts, I was at my work, and another volunteer, and a volunteer had asked me, hey, Nashi, how's the swimming coming? So I'm kind of frustrated. I don't like wearing these wetsuits when I swim. I wish there was a way I could just do it without it. You know, because it seems like it's a better way to do open water swimming. And a person who was sitting next to him perked up her ears and she just says, oh, I swim in open water. As a matter of fact, I do it without a wetsuit. And I'm a member of this club called the South End Rowing Club. You should, you, come, you should come down and be my guest. I said, oh, wow, that's great. And so we made a date to meet up at her club. And it was a hot uh, Memorial Day weekend. It was, it was that Monday of Memorial Day back in uh, 2008. And um, I'm sorry, 2009. And so I'm thinking it's 95 degrees in San Francisco on this day. Surely the water is going to be about 80. That was my, that was my thought process. That's, you know, that's, that's with my limited science ability. That's what I thought it was. And mind you, I don't have my wetsuit on. I step out into the water. All of a sudden, it felt like my feet were on fire. I stepped in a little bit more, and it felt like someone had taken a baseball bat and hit my shins, and now they were hurting. And I'm doubled over, and I'm saying, oh, dear Lord in heaven, please, I'm about to die. This is so painful. And she kept telling me, just breathe, just breathe. And I'm snapping at her, I am breathing. Leave me alone. And I'm trying to walk further and further in, and, you know, the cold's starting to dissipate, but not enough. And she says, it'll get better. Just don't worry about it. I said, it won't get better. It's going to get so much worse. And so we started swimming, and I swam from this little dock that was just off to the left 
to this other little dock, which is about 20 yards away. And I kept swimming back and forth to either little dock, just screaming out in pain each time I was doing this. And I said, oh, the heck with this. I'm going back in. So I swam back in and thought, this is crazy. I can't do this. But to my surprise, I came back to my workshop that following week without my wetsuit. I went in and I stayed in for 30 minutes. And I came back the next week and I stayed in for 35 minutes and it kept increasing and increasing. And ever since then, I look back on it and my friend who was the first one to, to bring me in um, had always said, I'm the one that got nausea out of his wetsuit. I'm the one that got nausea out of his wetsuit. And she's always been so proud of that. And ever since then, I never went back to a wetsuit. I swim year round, um, regardless of the temperature. Um, I can last for, if I'm in condition, if it's 60 degrees, I can last for 10 to 12 hours easily and not be hypothermic. Um, at 50 degrees, I could probably last a couple. I'll pay the price for it later, but at least I'll still be fine. But yeah, it's, it was just acclimation, uh, acclimation. I got used to the sea life. I got used to being bumped by seals. I got used to getting stung by jellyfish. I did get bumped by a shark one time. Thank God I didn't know it at the time. I found out the next day when a friend of mine told me it was there was a news report that it had happened and me and a friend of mine were out there and I said, oh, that's what bumped me. Okay, that makes sense. And my friends were all freaking out. I said, aren't you freaking? I said, no, I don't care about sharks. I said, that's, that's, that's not going to happen. I said, I'm, it's the jellyfish that freak me out. That's the stuff that freaks me out. They, they just come up out of nowhere. But yeah, I really got into it. And that was my, my quest to want to learn how to swim. Because when I was a kid, I didn't know if you could swim competitively on teams like you, Johanna. You know, I, did, I, did, I didn't know that that existed. As far as swim lessons, I thought that you had to pay all this money for it. My mom didn't have that kind of money. I was always envious of people who were around the, the local neighborhood pool, which you couldn't really learn how to do lessons in there because there was like 9 million of us in there during the summer, splashing around, having chicken fights, cannonballs, all the rest of that. So there was no way that you could learn. And I was, of course, not comfortable being able to jump off the deep end into the water. I mean, I best went up to my waist, and that was as far as I would go. Maybe sometimes I would, you know, get dunked underneath, but I would always clamor to get back up. So it really wasn't something that was, that I could, you know, I could understand. I didn't see anybody who looked like me who swam. All these kids were white who were swimming. And it just, never registered to me. So that's my experience early on with swimming. Now, of course, as I've gotten older and done the research and actually met people who've done some phenomenal things over the years, I realized that that wasn't true and I understand our rich history. But back then, I had no idea. Yeah, you're, re you're really painting this picture that highlights and articulates the, the structural conditions that like erect these both latent and manifest barriers to participation for a variety of folks um, in swimming. And, and we've talked about this on previous episodes um, with Kevin Dawson, with, with Jamal Hill. But I'm really curious to get your, your story uh, as someone who is a black swimmer and who learned to swim later in life. What does it mean to you to be a swimmer in a sport um, and physical activity that is at least structurally dominated by white folks, but has, as Kevin Dawson has highlighted, has like immense roots in black expertise. And as you've noted, has so many incredible black athletes participating in it. 
That's a great question, Derek. Yeah, that's one of the reasons, or that's one of the things that motivates me is because of that rich history. That's one of the things that I made myself really work on, study that history, because for so often, and I eventually joined that swim club that my friend took me to. I've been a member for 13 years at the South End Rowing Club. And sometimes when I would have discussions with people, they'd say, well, I don't know of too many black people that swim. And I would look at them kind of dumbfounded. And I said, we've been swimming for, I don't know how many centuries. I don't know why you showed up to the party late, but we've been out here for a long time. And I would bring up things of like, you know, do you know my friend Charles Chapman? And they'd say, no. I says, Charles Chapman was the first man, African-American man who swam the English Channel back in 1981. 1981, by the way, that's when he swam it. I says, the first African-American to swim with a relay of the channel was Mike Johnson, 1981. I said, you know, well, you know, that's just recent. I says, do you know who Pauline Jackson is? And they always look at me and they say, no, it says Pauline Jackson attempted to swim the Catalina Channel back in the 20s when Trudy Etterly was trying to swim the English Channel. I said, Walter Johnson was also a famous marathon swimmer. I said, Willis Hanks, in, 19, in the 1950s, five different times he attempted to swim the Channel. Once, I think on his fifth term or fifth uh, attempt, he came within the two-mile buoy. Just, you know, he, if... if and that's, that's the backbreaker. I've had a number of friends who swam the channel, and they said, that's the backbreaker. If you can get inside that buoy, you'll make it. But if you don't, and if the current switch, it'll carry you right back out. And unfortunately, it carried them right back out, and it will break you. Because the next chance that you can get in will be six hours later. You know? And if you've been swimming for anywhere from 12 to 14, I don't care who you are. It is, moral, it is morally defeating to have that happen. Yet he tried, and he kept trying, but no one knows about him. But I researched through friends and other things to find out about him. So for me, when I think about that history, that motivates me. When I'm having a tough day or when it's getting really rough out there and I don't want to quit, I think about someone like Richard Etheridge. Um, and I think Johanna and I had spoken about him in a previous conversation. Richard Etheridge was the captain of a group of um, lifeguards, well, I mean, they were part of the, um, the life-saving service, which was the precursor to the Coast Guard of what we all know of today. And they were in Pea Island, New, um, North Carolina, I mean, the Outer Banks of North Carolina. And oftentimes, ships that were passing by, if they got caught in storms, would be run aground. And these men would have to go out into the surf in order to save the stranded ships. And I've told this to a number of people when I'm introducing them to ocean swimming. We'll look out and they'll say, could you swim out into a certain kind of surf? If it's like really mushy and there's no breakers, I said, no, I'm not going to swim out in that. That's why I said, I will keep on getting pushed back to shore. There's no way that I'm going to be able to get past it. It's just too many coming at me. I said, if there's a swell and it breaks and I can see it, I can dive under it. And I can keep swimming. I says, but if it's all mush, it's just hitting me in the face constantly, constantly, constantly. There's no way I can get out there. And I said, think about it. These guys who didn't have the technology or the ideas that I was taught through YouTube and whatever had to learn this on the fly. These men would drag boats through muddy sand in gale force winds. And I'm, when I'm talking boats, I'm talking large barges. That would, you know, the, the kind that you see, those are the Australian lifeguards have the competitions in. 
and they would row out in waves like they did, even bigger waves. If they couldn't get the boat out there, literally people would swim out to the, to the ship to save people. That's basically like trying to take on a monster wave that people surf on and get through it. You cannot do it. How they did it, I still am in amazement. There's a great book called Fire on the Beach, which talks all about this and Richard Etheridge and his men. And they're noted for one great thing, um, you know, saving people on a boat called the E.S. Newman that ran aground. And it took them 10 hours. They had to drag their boats out there, you know, all night, all through the night, get ready and get in, into the boats and swim out. Because the surf was too rich, uh, too rough, Etheridge says, okay, you two, tie these ropes around your waist. We're going to hold on. You're swimming out there. And his two best swimmers made it through the breaks. It's something, and I've heard about the size of the breaks, the word that they were something like, they were like six to eight feet, which is absolutely insane to swim through. And yet they made it. And there's a, there's a, a memorial service that happens every year on, I think, October 11th, because this happened on October 11th, 1896, when they saved E.S. Newman, or at least the crew. And I think it's the great-great-grandson of the captain of the E.S. Newman who comes every year and he says, without Richard Etheridge and the six other men that risked their lives, I would not be here because my, my great-grandfather would be dead. You know, and I think about that on days when I don't feel like you know, swimming when I don't feel like showing up. And I realize all the things that people went through who look like me in order for me to have the access. All the weigh-ins that used to happen, you know, in Mississippi and other places to want to desegregate the beaches. You know, I mean, there was really only three beaches that you could go to, you know, back during the time of Jim Crow. I think there was the Inkwell that's out here in Santa Monica, and then there was Another equal somewhere, I think, in Florida, and there was Chicken Bone Beach and Revere Beach up where you all are at. You know, there weren't that many places. You could literally end up getting drowned if they caught you in the wrong place. So the restrictions on people to try to gain access is huge. Never mind the fact that we've had a rich swimming history that dates back to, four, you know, to the 1400s. I always tell people when they say, oh, I don't have any of my people in my family that swim, I says, okay, granted, you might not swim, and your parents may not, and even your grandparents, but I'll lay even money that your great-great-grandparents did. I says, and anybody past that, I know for a fact did, because they mostly lived on coastal waters. They were learning by the time they were six months, as Kevin has, you know, well-documented in undercurrents of power. So don't say that you can't swim. Don't give me this excuse. You know, I said, we can do this. Do not let people tell you you can't do. I believed that for 30 years until finally Colin Jones showed me that I could. We wanted to turn focus to the podcast like that, uh, an absolute brilliant um, answer. And I, I can't stress enough undercurrents of power um, by Kevin Dawson is one of like the books that we would recommend under all like every circumstance, not only for people interested in swimming, but just in sports, in life, in culture in general. It's an incredible book. Uh, and you can also listen to the episode 43 of The End of Sport, um, where we actually got the – we were super grateful to talk to, to um, Dr. Dawson. But we wanted to chat about the podcast, Crossing the Lane Lines. It's, in our opinion, 
a absolutely phenomenal phenomenal show um and it it explores not only the white supremacist history of modern swimming but also the crucial roles that black swimmers and aquatic um aquatics people have played over the past four centuries and you've already talked about some of this um to sort of carve out space and success for the black community can you walk us through your motivation to start the podcast initially what were your initial aims and the sort of scope for crossing the lane lines yeah well it actually started out of anger. When I watched briefly that lynching of George Floyd with Derek Chauvin kneeling on his neck, I literally just had to turn off my computer. I said, I can't watch this. This is just too disturbing. And I remember taking a break from social media for a few days and then finally coming back on and so many people saying, oh, it's just so horrible what happened. I can't believe that happened. And I just exploded and I just said, I don't understand why we were having this conversation that has been going on long before George Floyd. We told you it was happening. Why didn't you say anything, you know, when Laquan McDonald got shot, Philando Castile, Sandra Bland, you know, Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Abrams, Oh, I can keep going forever. I said, why didn't you say anything? I'm getting tired of having this conversation. I can feel myself getting angry, and I had to stop for a while. And so I kind of holed up in a room, and I said, what can I do to try to deal with this? Because this has just gotten out of control. You know, I've done my marching. I've been out there each time that someone's been killed. You know, what can I do constructively? What can I, what, what can I make happen that'll be more than, you know, just holding up another sign saying Black Lives Matter. And not to say that that's not a very powerful thing, but I wanted to do more. And so I decided that I was going to create a podcast and talk about issues that are pertinent to the Black community. But I wanted to focus, since I love it so much, on swimming. Because there was just this divide that so many white people just assumed that Blacks don't swim, like I was told by this man on the boat that they, if they don't see it, then obviously it doesn't exist. And I wanted to show that it did. So I wanted to sit down and say, how can I do this? How can I construct it? And I kept on putting it back into my head and I thought, let's go beyond swimming. Let's look at synchronized swimming. Let's look at diving. Let's look at, you know, boating. Let's look at uh, scuba. You know, let's look at the coaches. Let's look at the officials. Let's look at the parents' perspective from this. All these different things that I wanted to bring up. And over time, it started formulating into my head. And I thought, okay, well, this is a good way to go. Now, here's the second problem. Who the heck is going to come on to the show and talk? Who's going to be the first sacrificial lamb? So I reached out to Ebony Roseman of Black Kids Swim. And I had followed them for quite a while. I really appreciated what they had done. And I wrote her this hopefully very glowing email of how much that I appreciated what they were doing. And I said, would you do me the honor of being the first guest on a new show that I'm going to do called Crossing the Lane Lines? And she said, of course. And we went on and we just talked about Black Kids Swim and what was the impetus for it. And from there, I sit and out and I had an idea. I was trying to figure out what my next, I was, my next idea was going to be and I had no clue what it was going to be. And out of the blue, um, another social historian, who both of you might know or you might not know, named Marilyn Morgan, uh, Dr. Marilyn Morgan Westerner, had reached out to me. She wanted to 
interview me for a book that she was uh, finishing up. So I gave her my email, or I gave her my phone number, and we talked for quite a while. And I told her my story, and she said, "Oh, that's tremendous." And she said, "You know, have you ever read my friend's book? You know, resonating with you're talking about blacks and aquatics." And I said, "Who's your friend?" And she said, "Jeff Wiltsey." And my eyes nearly jumped out of my head. I said, I've been wanting to talk to Jeff Wiltsey for years. Is there any way that you could ask him if he'd be interested in being a guest on my show? And she said, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I'll, I'll get back to you right away. And within the next day, Jeff had sent me an email saying, yeah, I'd love to do it. And it was great. You know, he came on. And of course, as you both know, he was just so full of knowledge and so rich about the municipal pools here in the United States and all of the pain and suffering that had happened for African-Americans to try to gain access to things that they were paying for. And from that, it just kept snowballing. And I would find other people. I just on Lark sent out an email through her website to Maritza Correa uh, McClendon to come on the show. And I didn't hear back from her the first week. And I thought, oh, well, she's probably super busy. And suddenly the next week she said, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't get back to you. I would love to come on the show. And it just kept happening and it kept building and people, you know, one guest would tell the other or they would know something that I was interested in talking to. So it just kept on happening. But all the while, when I was doing this, I didn't want to do it from the perspective of like, oh, well, tell me your split times or tell me about this. Tell me about that. I says, you can Google that. That's easy to do. What I would want to know is when you were at this meet, what was it like being on the deck and being the only person there? Did you get the stares? Did you get, you know, the accusations? And I heard some brutal stories of people coming up to swimmers and saying, you shouldn't be here. You're beating my kid. You know, you should go over and play basketball or run track. You know, all of the assumptions. And what was great was that the listeners were hearing this from people who were gold medalists or silver medalists or Olympic hopefuls or former Olympians esteemed coaches and listening to all this garbage that was being told to them and yet they endured and kept going and some of them they had no idea who they were and they had been around forever doing this and it gave people a sense of understanding that the swimming world was bigger than they thought it was it wasn't just usa swimming's little bubble that they had of the nice you know make a little black person so thankful to be there or all the nice white people who are allowing them to come in. You know, they're being allowed to dictate the narrative. And from the beginning, and this was the other part of, uh, to answer your question, Derek, of why I started the podcast, was I was furious when I read USA Swimming after the death of George Floyd. I was absolutely livid. I mean, excuse my language, I, I, I read it and I said, what the fuck were you guys thinking? What is this? I, I could be absolutely stone drunk and write something better than this. This is absolutely disgusting. And I'm glad that Noelle Singleton called them out on that. I'm so happy, I'm so happy that she did that because that needed to happen. That needed, they needed to be called on the carpet. And then they give out another response, including the words Black Lives Matter. But by then, for me, I, my, you know, my assumptions had already been made clear. I said, oh, so... Because it's a good image for you, you're going to say that. Just like the NBA, just like the NFL, just like the NHL. You know? And just like all the rest of them, once their seasons are over, 
once it had all died down, all of a sudden you don't see the Black Lives Matter logos anymore. All of a sudden you don't see Lift Every Voice being played. Not that necessarily they had to be, but everything was just seasonal for them. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have someone like Johanna on to the show to talk about that. That's why I was so happy when I heard you guys having Dr. Matt Holder on your show, as well as talking about the whole situation with Cleet Keller to call them out on this ridiculous, this ridiculous notion that, oh, we can't do anything. What the fuck do you mean you can't do anything? You know, you have a code of conduct that I read on my podcast that said that you could do something, but you chose not to do it. Yeah. One of the things that we we really admire and appreciate about your work is the fact that you don't just kind of run through like times and you do, you go deeper into a lot of these issues than just kind of giving a cursory glance. But you actually ask legitimate questions that connect the sport to the broader structure and the, and the culture of swimming um, in general. And and. I really want to get to USA Swimming, and I know, I know Johanna wants to get to USA Swimming, but let me ask you just one more question about the, the kind of podcast, because if you were to kind of not pitch the podcast, but if you were to, 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 to tell our listeners like the one thing or, or a couple things that you really want them to learn um, and for you to demonstrate um, to listeners in your podcast by kind of talking to so many different folks, um, water polo players, coaches, activists, synchronized swimmers, um, all different types of folks in the in the community. If there was kind of one takeaway for the, from the podcast, what would that kind of be? That's a great question. I, I, I think the one thing that I want them to take away from this is that we're not a monolith in terms of this sport. We don't just swim, you know, we do play water polo. We are divers. We are um, great coaches. We're officials. We're parents who are struggling to try to make sure that their kids can go to these elite uh, programs and, and just literally busting their tails off to make sure that every single dime goes towards those kids having the opportunity. Talking about the HBCUs and the rich history that they had in aquatics. Um, you know, it's so broad. And you can't just look at it like saying, oh, look at Colin, look at Simone. You know, isn't it so exciting that now you guys are here? I says, where, where have you been? I said, we've been here long before they were. I said, don't you know anything about Kevin Colquitt? Don't you know anything about Malachi Cunningham? You know, they were, they were elite swimmers when they were around. You know, um, a lot of people say, oh, it's so exciting that, you know, Anthony Nesty is now the head, men's and women's uh, head coach at Florida. I says, yeah, he's been on staff since 1999. He's given that school six championships on his own. So, hey, thanks for catching up. You know, um, I love it when people assume when I have uh, Ashley Johnson, not the goalkeeper, although she's great, um, but the synchronized swim, uh, national synchronized swim coach, that people think, oh, isn't that wonderful? She's finally gotten into the game. I says, no, she hasn't just gotten into the game. If you were in the, if you live back east and you want to try to make the national team in artistic swimming. You have to go to her program. That's, that's the reality. That's how good she is. People come from all over the Eastern Seaboard and the Midwest to go to her because they know that that's their best chance. You know, it's not, she's not a flash in a pan. So it's a very broad scope that I want people to see, you know, and that there are people that 
people clamor for. Everyone knows about the movie Pride that featured, you know, Jim Ellis, who has been at, you know, in Philadelphia and at the PDR swim program. What they don't fully realize is, yes, it started out as a black program. Now, kids of all races beg their parents to somehow give them an opportunity to swim for Ellis because he's that good. He's been in the trenches for a long time. He's done all this stuff. Most people didn't know about Malachi Cunningham coaching at Temple University for four years and then LaSalle for 15. I've spoken to a lot of his LaSalle women. They said, my God, I, you know, my swimming transformed when I worked with that man. And there he is, an African-American who's been at the NCAA level for more than almost 20 years, and no one knew about him. So when you say that all we do is swim, please shut up and do your research. Yeah, and I just I and and Derek's gonna ask the next question. Um, but I just want to say for for listeners who haven't checked out his podcast, I mean, you know, as someone who is a who was a swimmer, who is a white swimmer, who didn't really know much of any of most of the history that you detail throughout your episodes with all of the guests that you bring on. I mean, the history it's so rich and it it is such an educational um, podcast. And I think what's also really important is that the guests that you bring on they not only talk about the like challenges and the racism and all of the issues that they faced, but the, the, the fact that the issues are ongoing, right? Because, because the thing is, is that white people, they just want to hear, oh, they struggled and then they triumphed and then end of story. And it's like a Disney fairy tale and like, no, it is ongoing and the fight continues. Um, and they, you know, the, and, and so I think that's really important for listeners to get out of your episodes is that is ongoing. It's not something you can kind of wrap up and like put a bow on it. Um, and, and just to kind of shout out a few episodes, because, um, again, they're just, again, as someone who is a swimmer, but I think anyone who's not right, anyone who has any interest in kind of like any activity in the water, I mean, the, the episode with water polo, Janai Kerr, to me that I love that episode in part. And I know Derek knows about this because I immediately texted the guys about it. The, the the part where he talks about how when he was part, because he was part of the Olympic team, um, the the Olympic water polo team in the two thousands, that when um, the filmmakers who filmed the documentary Freedom's Fury, which is a documentary about this famous blood in the water polo match between the Hungarians and the Soviets, it's which is a documentary that I have showed in class and I've recommended so many times and that I have thought about writing about within my research about Cold War sport and Hungarian sport, um, and then he tells the story about how the filmmakers are use the Olympic team. They film the Olympic team like playing in the water to use as part of their footage in the film. But then they went back and essentially like refilmed all of those scenes to exclude him because according to quote unquote historical accuracy, there were no black people who were playing in this water polo match between the Soviets and Hungarians in 1956. And therefore they chose to exclude Janai Kerr and his teammates and spent however many thousands of dollars to refilm these scenes so they would not include the images of two black water polo players. Like, God forbid that they do not maintain that kind of historical accuracy when throughout any kind of historical fiction or documentary, filmmakers and producers select which facts to be true to and which facts to kind of blur the lines around. But for whatever reason... They needed to uphold, they needed to maintain the whiteness 
of the game. Like that was more important to them than other details. And so that is just like a random nugget that was really interesting. You have the episode with Noah Singleton, who is just fabulous. And she's the one who very famously took USA Swimming to task last summer that you already mentioned. So her episode is great. Um, I love the episode with Swimmer and the first um, black coach of the NCAA, Malachi Cunningham, who you also just mentioned. I learned so much of, from all of these episodes and they're just so powerful and again show the historic struggle and the hist- and the contemporary struggle and the triumphs too right the triumphs are very important but just to show that like we have not arrived at all right like like and we will not arrive for who knows when that will happen but like there will be sort of no racial reckoning because USA swimming and the swimming world hasn't come anywhere close to that happening right like we are still pushing for this to happen and so just as like a plea to end of sport listeners go listen to those episodes i have so many more sort of stories that i could i could i could talk about but just it is such a powerful uh podcast and i just wanted to shout those out cuz i thought they were really fantastic i appreciate that those those were ones also that resonated with me and also the one that i did with you i you know got a lot of congratulatory remarks from people and a lot of pushback, which is exactly what I wanted. Um, Like I've told people from the beginning when I started doing this, I said, I'm not here to make friends. I'm here just to tell the truth and allow people to tell the truth. That's why Noel was on and she spoke the way that she needed to speak. That's why Janai was on and he told about his own experience. That's why you were on and you and Derek and Dr. Matt Hodler and so many other amazing, amazing people out there we're saying factually, this is what is happening. This is not fake news. This is not, oh, well, you're just making up or I don't choose to believe it. Well, you, you don't have to believe it if you don't want to. It's still fact. You know, and until you can prove otherwise, that's the way it's going to stay. So I appreciate that aspect because this needs to get out. These stories need to be heard. And you're right, Johanna. When you are talking about um, these achievements, that they make, and I'm glad for their achievements. It didn't come easily for a lot of them. They had to really, really work at it. And I think a lot of people forget that when they're in the water or on the deck, they have to work 20 times harder. They cannot afford to make a mistake. They cannot afford to have a blow up. They cannot afford to start cussing people out. Why don't they say, oh, well, look at that nigga. He's acting great. One of, I think you like offered the perfect segue to, to talk about the responses. One of, one of the things that we on the end of sport have, have kind of um, not struggled with, but some, a, a common theme has been responses to our episodes, because like you said, we're not here to kind of make friends. We're not here to, to, to sort of toe the line of, of, you know, sports are great. There's like the, this amazingly powerful and perfect thing that is positive in any in every single um context and and we have received quite a bit of backlash whether it be on twitter or in a variety of different contexts so i'm really curious to get your experiences and and to learn about some of the responses that you might have received um to your episodes specifically are there any kind of episodes that listeners kind of overwhelmingly um, uh, responded positively? And then on like the flip side, are, are there any topics or um, episodes where there's been like a lot of, of negativity um, sort of projected? And, and if so, any ideas as to, to why? Yeah, that is really a great question. Um, in terms of the most popular, it was one that I had with, um, a good friend of mine who lives not too far away from me down in San Jose, California, Rhonda Harper, 
who is a professional surfer. She's also a surf coach, and she is training two young women from Senegal to get ready for Tokyo. And everybody loved that because that wasn't too long after the paddle outs for George Floyd, and everybody thought, well, this is, this is fantastic. We're all doing this. We're all in this together. We're doing this and that and the other thing. It's so cool, all of us, you know, as one. But hidden underneath that was Rhonda's, you know, saying what you just now said, Johanna, is like the work isn't done. The paddle out is not the only thing. You need to keep focused. And a lot of people didn't hear that within that podcast. So it was like one of the more popular ones, which is fine. I don't care if it is and stuff. I'm happy that, you know, she got the exposure that she got. And hopefully it allowed her to have more people who want to help out with Black Girl Surf, which is an organization she founded. So that was the most popular one. But they missed a lot of the message that she was trying to say. Without question, the most controversial one was the one that Johanna and I did. And it's probably my favorite. I've listened to that one seven or eight different times on my own. So most of the analytics on that one come from me because I loved it so much. And simply for the fact that just like Johanna um, had done with that brilliant article that she and Dr. Matt Holder had written about USA's, you know, swimming has a racism problem. I'm glad that it was called out. And I think a lot of people might say that, well, now that Noel has kind of called out USA Swimming, and they've released another statement, all is well, we can all move forward. And I'm glad that you all said, no, 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 no. That's just the starting point. Let's keep moving forward. And I had heard about some of the, the backlash that you go get from, you know, people on Twitter and these sorts of things. And I was wondering, I thought, well, you know, this story isn't done yet. I have a big issue with us giving a pass to a man who was involved with a mob that tried to marginalize my vote for the president of the United States, saying that mine doesn't count because of the color of my skin. I have a big problem when you can't accept the fact that your man lost and you lose your mind and then you go and try to storm the Capitol. Actually, you storm the Capitol. You defecate, you know, inside the building. You urinate inside the building. You end up having five people get killed, 140 Capitol Police officers being injured, some pretty severely. And you have the, the nerve to tell me, oh, well, you know, let's move forward. It's in the past. Let's move forward. And here's Cleet Keller with his Olympic jacket on, walking, wandering around. Now, granted, he wasn't being violent as far as I know. It didn't, the video didn't show that from what I understand. But that's not the point. If I'm in there robbing the liquor store and you and Derek are in the driver's seats waiting to take me away, you're just as guilty as I am. So I don't care if you're busting up stuff or not. You're out of line. And on top of that, which is why I really pressed this when we spoke during that podcast episode, uh, Johanna, is that I decided to read out that code of conduct that they had, where it said any perspective current or former member that does X, Y, and Z, which is illegal, can be barred, can be sanctioned, can be banned. But yet here you are as USA Swimming saying, oh, well, you know, there's not, you know, he's not a member right now, so there's not a lot we can do. You know, let's just, let's just move forward. I have a problem with that, and that's why I kept on calling them out. You can't expect people of color 
to want to be involved in your organization when you're acting like this. You can't expect people of color to want to trust you when there's no one in that organization that looks like you, with the exception, unless they're working within the diversity, equity, and inclusion staff. You can't expect people of color to trust you when your own words are not backed up by actions, just like Derek just said. You're not doing anything. Anybody can talk to me. I'd much rather appreciate a person who just literally does things quietly and gets them done and doesn't look for fanfare. But that's not you. That's what, you know, you'll trot out all these black women. You'll trot out Simone. You'll trot out Cullen. You'll trot out Sabir. You'll trot out uh, Janai and Ashley Johnson and say, oh, look at us. We're so diverse. Well, guess what? Not every black person wants to be a competitive swimmer. Not every black person wants to go ahead and train for half their life in order to get 30 to 40 seconds of glory. A lot of us just want to be able to go down to the lake and know that the minute that we step into that lake, if something happens, if we reach a drop-off, we'll know how to comfortably get back. If we're horsing around in a pool and someone dunks us underneath, we can swim away and be, you know, and be safe. That's what we need. Don't send us, make a splash, which I, you know, a friend of mine's affectionately called make a splash and dash and think that you've done your job. You haven't. You need to sit down and you need to listen to the hard truths, the real hard truths, which is that your organization has a deeply systemic racist problem, a deeply systemic racist problem. And you haven't addressed it. You're not even close to coming to address it. So I got a lot of pushback with people saying, well, you know, you don't know the inner works. And said, yeah, actually, I do. I have friends that work in USA Swimming. And ironically, most of them were really happy when that, when that episode came out. They said, thank you, because this needed to be said. This needed to be said. So don't act like it's all hunky-dory when Black History Month comes up and you have a photo of you know, Dr. King um, swimming in a pool. Don't think that that's the end of it. That's not enough for me. I don't care about diversity. I don't care about inclusion. I want equity. I want power. And as we all know, as Frederick Douglass once says, power concedes nothing without a demand. Well, I want you to sit down at the fucking table and realize that I'm going to break up this table because this table is not, it's not equal for me, for people who look like me and people who look like my Latinx brothers and sisters or my Southeast Asian and Pacific Islander brothers and sisters. And we need to start all over again. And if that means breaking up USA Swimming and doing something new, I'm all for it. But we can't keep going the same road that we're going now. So, you know, I got a ton of pushback. I got a lot of people saying, that's it, I'm not going to listen to the podcast anymore. And I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm fine with that. I didn't have a lot of listeners to begin with. So, you know, I'm not asking anybody to pay for it. I'm okay. You know, truth hurts. Sorry, not my problem. Yeah, and I'm, I'm as I'm thinking through your absolutely fantastic answer. I mean, I mean, even the, the whole, the whole response 
that's like you or we or whatever don't understand the inner workings of USA swimming. It's like we understand the inner workings of how white supremacy structures so much of our society and like our government, our government, all these industries. I mean, there's so much evidence and across every single industry that cis white supremacy hurts and harms people. And, and so the fact that like, okay, so maybe you or I or whoever do not understand the exact inner workings of you. So assuming it's like, okay, regard, like, so I don't, for example, like you have a much better idea because you have friends or organization, whereas I don't, but it doesn't even really matter because I shouldn't have to know what it actually looks like on the inside because I'm in there for what they show me, right? Like how is any one single person supposed to know what's going on in the organization and be like, oh, now I really understand because no one except for the people who work there, works there actually knows what it's like on a day-to-day basis, right? So like using that, it, it's just an excuse. Um, and your whole thing about like wanting, you know, the thing is, is that they are, they are a part of the problem that that's the issue. And that's the thing that they, people don't want to hear. They don't want to accept that. Um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, and you, you, you already answered sort of my question about sort of, um, your thoughts about <laughs> USA swimming. So, so which, which is wonderful. So I like, I think I'll, I think I'll kind of go, um, to the next one, um, a little bit, which, which is to, to, you know, like to what extent do you feel like people are maybe people within or even people without USA swimming, to what extent do you think they're maybe hearing the message that you and your guests are, are trying to, to give throughout the podcast and kind of what has their response been that you are aware of? Well, like I mentioned before, I think people on the ground, um, coaches that I know and some of the parents who are involved with USA swimming strictly from the ground standpoint, get it right away because they see the reality on the ground. I have a good friend of mine uh, in Buffalo, New York, who has a multiracial swim club. And I remember I was on Facebook one day and he had sent out a message. And it was right when Ramadan began. For your listeners who don't know, you know, I'm Muslim, um, progressive Muslim, but, you know, Muslim in the West. And he had asked, how can I go about being sensitive to the needs of my Muslim swimmers during Ramadan? And I was so blown away by that question because Mike was taking a moment to try to be sensitive to these kids to make sure that he was being respectful. And I had given him some suggestions. And he was so touched by that. But I was more touched that he had that kind of deep understanding. People like him there's the ones who should be up there where Tim Henchy is. I'm sorry. He should be helping running the show. And I can guarantee you, Mike would say, no, you know, by 2045, this is mostly going to be a black and brown country anyway. We should have someone else at the top. I'll just keep working here and taking my orders from them. That's the kind of attitude he would have. But if you were going to have someone who was white who was up there, that's the kind of person you would want to have. I mentioned earlier that, you know, um, I used the term accomplice, you know, to describe something in a negative standpoint. But I'm not a fan of the term ally. I hate that term. I think it's kind of like, you know, like woke. It's just kind of like something that people throw out to say that they are, but they really aren't. I like to use the term accomplice. And instead of being an ally and having my back, and at least, of course, the heat really gets 
you know, bad, then you kind of disappear. I want you to be an accomplice. While I'm in there robbing the liquor store, you're in the getaway car, willing to risk me off where we can get away together. And I always tell my friends, I said, if I call you an accomplice, this is, we're, we're tight. I, I trust you 100%. And Mike's one of those people. But Mike's a rarity who's actually with USA Swimming. Certainly not within the middle management area or definitely in the upper management area. I exclude the DEI people because I sincerely believe a lot of the people in DEI are doing their absolute best. But I also believe that USA Swimming kind of sidelines the DEI people. And they're willing to have them there so long as they kept within this little bubble. If, did you ever notice when the players in the NBA as well as in the NFL took a knee, the executives knew that because it was, you know, predominantly black, there's only so much they can do, but they kind of kept it within a certain confine, making sure that it was okay with them, that it, okay, that it, that it, that it worked out fine with them. But if they had stepped over this line, maybe punishments would have started happening. Maybe they would have ended up like Kaepernick or Eric Reed. Or maybe they would get vilified like Kyrie Irving. So for me, it's the same type of thing that's happening with the DEI people. I believe that they are really wanting to push for true equity, true diversity, true inclusion. But I think if USA Swimming wants to keep them within a bubble, and if they try to push out of that bubble, I think the backlash will be hard. It's not a strike against the people in DEI. It's a strike against USA Swimming. Because you have to be willing to listen and appreciate what they know. These are black and brown people who know the experience. They've been through it. They are swimmers. They understand. They've been on a deck and had to suffer the slings and arrows. At meets, their parents had to listen to people saying, well, what the heck is this little, you know, Bloody body blast out there swimming and stuff. They should be playing soccer or basketball or baseball or, or whatever. As if we don't have a right to be there. So you need to sit down there and listen to them. If you're not willing to listen to them and really, really do the work, I got nothing to say to you. I don't even want you to look at me. That's one of the reasons why when people ask me, are you going to join USA Swimming? Because I know that you're trying to form a youth swim program. I said, no, I'm, there's no way in the world I'm going to do that. I am not joining them. I, I can't in good conscience do that. They are not where they need to be. And I won't subject my kids to that because that's not right. It's already tough enough for them. I don't need to make it worse by being with an organization that doesn't care about them, except when it's February 1st through February 28th or when it's, you know, Latinx History Month. I'm not interested in that. It's either 365 or nothing. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, you and I have talked about this before, and I definitely, you know, I, I feel for people who work in quote unquote sort of DEI positions because they're portraying a, a rock and a hard place. Right. And, and they're there to kind of put a band, put band-aids over huge, huge cultural, like, you know, company organizational wide, um, cultural problems 
And, and, and unless, you know, that there's, I would be shocked if they were given the funding and the, the power and the agency to be able to enact what they think is right, no matter how willing, no matter how, you know, how much expertise they have, right, is that they are up against a, you know, decades long white culture, which is built upon this long history of white supremacy that, that you, that we've talked about, that scholars have shown and that you are demonstrating on the podcast. I mean, you know, they're, they're working against these enormous like tsunami waves. So, I mean, I, I, I feel for them and, and I feel for them when like I critique USA swimming because I would bet, although I obviously don't know, but, but I would bet that the critiques are passed on to DEI folks, right? Is like, they are the ones that have to address the critiques and not the top of the organization that needs to look at themselves in the mirror, right? Like DEI people are there to handle these critiques, and to kind of show, oh, look, we're making an effort. And that, that isn't fair. And, you know, yesterday I, I was, I put this on Instagram and in response to some of your comments. And I put this on Twitter, you know, looking at the staff directory page of USA Swimming's website. And, you know, you can only tell so much by looking at the pictures and looking at people's names. So this is like, not like a science, you know, any kind of in-depth or sort of scientific uh, study, but, you know, they have like 71 people listed on there and 61 of them have pictures along with the names. And out of the 61 people, like 23 of them appear to be white men. 30 of them appear to be white women, which is interesting. Then there are two black men and one black woman, which is just, and again, like, again, like, you know, to actually do like a true study, like more information is needed. Um, so this is a very, very rough thing and not, and not, you know, again, more study needs to be done. But it, it is interesting that there, for me as a white woman, it's very interesting to see 30 white women and one black woman, right? And to me, that shows the like white, again, the whiteness of the organization, right? That it's not like gender, at least within the structure of the organization, doesn't quite seem to be an issue anymore. But that means that there are all these white women that are, you know, like upholding by de facto of working for an organization and, and, you know, for, at least from appearances sake, like not pushing for broader diversity and equity, right? Like according to these numbers, the buck stops at white women, right? Because as long as they have positions within USA Swimming, they seem to be fine with it. Again, I don't really know because these, you know, I'm not privy to those conversations, but as someone who's looking at the website and looking at the website and demanding more inclusion and equity, that's what I see. Um, and, 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 you know, for, for people who may know, for example, the history of title nine, which very famously like expanded the funding for the funding and opportunities, uh, across gender lines for women's sport. I mean, research shows that white women overwhelmingly benefited from title nine and not black and brown women. Right. So like, it's part of this history, part of this history that I continue to be a part of and that I continue to benefit from as being a white woman. So, I mean, the thing is to, to, to go, this is a very long winded way of sort of going to your point about, you know, like whether someone does or does not know the inner workings of the organization, you know, that only matters so much because the public image and the public actions are what people like myself see and what swimmers see, what black and brown swimmers see. And it is very clear according to their outward actions that they are not centering the, the, the needs and the aims and, um, the experiences of black and brown people, right. They're, they're not doing well, and that. That's, and, and, and you see, that's, that's a good point because one of the things that I try to tell people who I meet and 
we talk about things such as the HBCU swim programs that used to exist and how badly I would love for them to come back. You know, and people say, why? And it's just because, just like Ebony Rosman once said on my very first podcast, everybody needs to be in a majority at some point in their life. Everybody needs to be. That's so critical to be there. And there's nothing more frustrating than when you're out there and you're looking up at the deck and the person doesn't look like you. Your swim partners don't look like you. Everybody in the stands doesn't look like you. Your parents are out of place. But yet at the National Black Heritage Swim Championships, I'm just another face in the crowd. No one's looking at me because I look just like you. Oh, there's your coach. Oh, your coach looks just like my coach. That's cool. Or if you're going to a place like Howard, or if you're going to a place like Morgan State, and you look around and everybody looks like you, you know how empowering and how encouraging that is. And I know a lot of people think, well, you know, I never thought of that way. So of course you don't think of it that way because you're white. You don't have to think of it that way. Because in everything in your world, white is normal, the way the world is supposed to be. And your real genius, your real genius is that for so long, you managed to convince us that that was the way it was supposed to be too. Well, convincing, I guess convincing definitely, but also enacting violence, right? Like it, part of it is, is convincing and, and, but also using violent as you, as you, as you know, and as you've talked about in your podcast, um, Absolutely. And, and I think too, and you and I've talked about this, I feel like I'm saying this many times in this, in this episode, but we've talked a lot recently and I, it's for, it continues to baffle me, like how hard for some reason it can be for some people to imagine, right? Like imagine what it would be like to look around and not see people like you. And that's what I don't understand. And that's where for me, the like willful, ignorance or the willfulness or the the people's will, right? That the people have a desire to do or to not do things. And it really doesn't take much effort to, to, to kind of imagine what it must be like for a black or brown swimmer or a queer swimmer or a trans swimmer or whatever, you know, whatever it is and kind of how they're made to feel or not feel. Um, but, but again, I, I just think at some point people's, people's like personal decisions and their wills come into it. Um, at least that's what I think. Well, absolutely. And if you want to know something even more, uh, devastating Johanna is you're just talking about the pool. We haven't even touched on open water. You want to look around at places where no one looks like you come into my neighborhood. I mean, it's not very often. I mean, I have friends who are people of color who swim open water. But in terms of black people, not that many. Um, marathon swimmers, I pretty much know all of them. You know, nationwide. Possibly worldwide, I know most of them. It, there's not many of us. And the ironic thing is, it goes way back to what we said at the beginning of the podcast. Where did we learn to swim? Open water. That's what we learned. We learned in the oceans. We learned in the rivers. We learned in the bays. That's where those kids learned. That's where you first started. That Kevin Dawson brilliantly brought up in his book. They take rides on manatees. They take on crocodiles and kill them for sport. If they saw a shark when they were in the water, they didn't panic. They were like saying, come at it. Let's see who wins this fight. And most of the time, that person who's in the water with the shark would win. 
But this is history that no one knows about. Not even my own people know about it. And when you tell them, it's, oh, that can't be true. I says, why are you buying into that narrative that says it's not true? We need to break away from that because we have a rich, I mean, an incredibly rich swimming history. Before they, before white people even dipped their toes, for 400 years, hardly anybody would get into the water. Why? Because they had this superstition. A lot of people don't realize that most sailors from the 19th century backward didn't know how to swim. Most white sailors didn't know how to swim from the 19th century back. And people might think, well, why, why didn't they know how to swim? Well, if you're on a ship and you're out in the middle of the ocean and it sinks and you can't see land, what's the point? And to a certain extent, that, that, that's decent logic. Because there's no one who's coming to rescue you, so of course not. But here's the fascinating thing. And I always tell this when I go and speak to people sometimes about blacks and swimming, and especially open water swimming. I always ask them, have you ever seen, there's this famous drawing, I don't know who did it, but it's like you're looking down into the hull of a ship, and you see these drawings of all these slaves lining the ships, just packed in there like sardines. And I always ask them, I said, why are they in there? And people say, well, they're packing them in there for to get maximum profit for they can send them off to the new world, because a lot of them, you know, at least like a third of them are going to die along the passage. I said, you're absolutely correct. But there's a bigger answer. Try again. And they'll say, well, they were down there and they were chained because they might mutiny. I says, right at your end. But there's a bigger answer. What is it? And that's when it gets silent. And I always tell them the same thing. I says, the reason why they are down in that hole, the reason why they are chained, the reason why they're packed in there for they can't move is because, God forbid, if they got onto that deck, and if they can see, just like Kevin Dawson has said, if they can see shore, they're jumping off and they're going to swim to it. They're jumping off and they're going to swim to it. Oh, and by the way, they're swimming with chains. And they're making it. And shore isn't necessarily, oh, a mile or 500 meters or 1,000 meters that you can see. Like I said before, at the very, very beginning, on a clear day, like I was, out on that water in the ocean from 20 miles away, I could still see shore. That's how clear and that's how far it can be. And here are people making it. So please understand this when I say you are really coming from a rich swimming history. And it drives me absolutely insane when I constantly have to keep repeating this to my open water swim friends. And I always tell them, I says, please pick up Kevin Dawson's book. Please read Jeff Wilson's book. Please listen to my old interview with Charles Chapman. Please read about Pauline Jackson, Willis Hanks, Walter Johnson, a number of other people whose names now I'm forgetting that have been around and who swam long distances in open water. And it's very hard. It's, it's really difficult for me. Because a lot of times, and I would always tell this to a good friend of mine, Zamina Roden, who's a phenomenal marathon swimmer. She's an African-American woman that lives here in the Bay Area with me. We always used to laugh. He said, you know what? You and I are going to be the ones to be the first for a lot of these swims that we do. We'll be the first. And that's a damn shame. Because we have 
so many people, so many people who could have the opportunity to do this. But number one, it's incredibly expensive. I have to raise money for when I consider doing a swim most of the time because I can't afford it. You know, I mean, for your listeners who don't know, if you decide to swim the English Channel, it takes you about five years to get a booking. It's going to, and if you're coming from the U.S., that's about coupled with your pilot that you have to book early, lodging and food, and possibly even if you had a small crew of, like, say, your spouse or someone else as your crew chief and one other person to be your feeder, you're talking about anywhere from eight to ten grand. And here's the real kicker, Johanna, that most people don't know about. The minute that the observer who's watching you says, are you ready? You raise your hand and you step into that water. The minute that your feet touches water, all that money is theirs. There are no refunds. And from that moment forward, you have to get from that point, from the White Cliffs of Dover to um, Calais on your own. You can't have a wetsuit. You can't use pool boys. You can't use paddles. You can't use fins. You can only wear your bathing suit, a cap, goggles, and earplugs. That's it. You can't hold on to anything. Even if a log floats by, you can't touch it. You can't touch the boat. You break any of those rules, you're automatically disqualified. We all know those rules. Universally accepted by all of us. So, it's, it's, it's a huge financial commitment. And there's no guarantee if you go over there, the weather's going to hold up. I've had friends who sat around for two and a half weeks praying that the winds would die down enough where they could swim. And they never did. And they had to return. You're not going to get the money back from the plane flight. You're not going to get the money back from the hotel. You can hold on to the reservation. But you're still going to have to come up with about six to $7,000 again to go back over there. Is it worth it? So when you talk about open water swimming, right now, the reality is it's pretty much a white sport, just like swimming in general is. But it's much more involved in terms of how expensive it can be at times. I was going to say, thank you for detailing that. And I was going to mention this earlier, but my internet come out, so I had to drop, drop out for a little bit. Um, but I mean... I did open water. I did a couple like open water swimming races when I was little, like a mile in the ocean, or one time I did like a two mile lake <laughs> swim, and I and I hated it. Um, I just it, you know I just not being able to see how much longer I had, and also it, it's 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 way different. And I and I think for people who may not be avid swimmers or even you know don't really swim that often at all, there is a huge difference between the pool is a very like controlled environment, at least from my perspective, someone who tried open water swimming a long time ago and just really didn't take to it. And like, I mean, you're, you're doing an amazing job of really detailing how hard it is. And you're teaching me because I don't even, I don't even know anything about these prohibitive costs, but it's also, I mean, the idea for me of getting in water that cold, a, that's a, that's a, that's a, a no go. Cause I hate cold water and all my old friends would tell me how much I hated it when I swam, but also just kind of like how long you swim. I mean, the idea of just like swimming for miles and miles and miles without a break, 
Um, you know, and, and I, again, I, I think like, like you are obviously, you are well suited for it because you, you really like that challenge and you really like that environment for, and it's not, but it's for me, it's not for me, but I really appreciate you detailing how expensive it is because like you said, that really amps up because of, um, global racial inequities and global racial capitalism. That is why it is an even more, it seems like it's an even more white arena than it is. And sort of like pool swimming. Does that seem about right? It is. And I mean, there's definitely prohibitive costs, obviously, within pool swimming. And, you know, it's not to say that every single open water swim that you want to do is going to cost you a million dollars. But some of them, if you're traveling to another state or to another country, it's, it's, you know, it's going to really, really challenge your pocketbook. I mean, there's things that you can do locally, but if you're stuck in Nebraska and you want to do an open water, you're going to have to go somewhere to do it, whether it be on the West Coast or on the East Coast or down in, in Florida or down in, near the Gulf. Or, like I said, if you're going over to England or if you're going to New Zealand to swim the Cook Strait or if you're going to Japan to swim uh, Suguru or if you're coming here to California to swim the Catalina Channel, all these different places or Molokai in Hawaii, they cost money. You have to find a place to stay. And, yes, there are a lot of people who are very generous about helping you out with some deferred costs. You can stay with friends who you know through the open water swim community. But that's not a guarantee. And even if you did, even if you did, there's no guarantee, like I said before, that you're going to be able to do that swim. And for a lot of black people, they're like, say, why in the world would I do that? And like you said, I don't want to deal with the cold water. I get that. You know, I don't like being able to not see the bottom. I get that too. You know, and like you said, in the pool, you have a controlled environment. You probably ran the same split times when you were doing breaststroke and butterfly for several years. I can promise you, you will never have the same open water swimming swim experience twice, ever. No one has ever said they've, they've had that. And oh, by the way, none of us like getting in initially. We all hate that. At least the cold water. <laughs> that does yeah, make me feel better. Cold water swimmers like myself, yeah. we all hate it. That's the worst part of it for all of us. We, you know, I, I invoke more profanity at that point than ever I do in my lifetime. But that being said, it's exhilarating once you get going. But unfortunately, I have to motivate myself. Like I said, there's not a lot of people that look like me that do this. I luckily have a friend of mine who I see all the time. And, and she and I can lean on each other. But my other friends, they've got all sorts of people that look like them. And it doesn't happen within the open water swim community. When I've gone to places, or when I've worked as an observer, or when I've worked as a crew chief, I've been mistaken for just being, oh, well, why are you here? I feel like saying, yeah, I'm the one who's running the show today. I'm the one who trained her or him. You? What are you doing here? Oh, well, I thought, you know, what, what did you think? You know, just because you're the black guy doesn't mean that you're like some, you know, low-level person. Don't assume. But sometimes that happens. I've been at competitions for friends, and I've helped them out. And I've gone to get their bags because I didn't want them to deal with it. I would deal for them for they could just concentrate on racing. Some said, oh, oh, those are the swimmers' bags. Says, yes, I understand that. My friend is the swimmer and I'm getting his bag. I'm not stealing anything. Calm down. Oh, I didn't mean that. Yeah, you did. The assumption of knowing your place, whether it be overt 
or subtle still happens within the open water swim community. I'm not saying that I haven't met some amazing people I have. I've met very progressive people. I've met people who really want to try to change the narrative and see what's going on. But I always tell them the same thing. That's great that you want to see more diversity. I want to see it too. But the first place that we need to start is confronting the fact that there is not access for them to have swim lessons. Even if there is a YWCA, how do you know that they can afford to get to that YWCA? And even if they can't afford to get to YWCA, how do you know that they can afford the goggles and the swimsuit? And even if they can afford all that, how do you know this can't just be a one-off thing, that they can't afford to constantly keep coming back? All these different things you need to ask yourself that you might be taking for granted. Because, you know, one of the things that always drives me crazy is when people say, well, I learned to swim when I was three or four. I'm like, oh, well, good for you. You had access. I said, I didn't. In my neighborhood, hardly anybody knew how to swim. And we didn't have swim lessons available. So there's that. You know, so don't look surprised when I tell you I learned to swim at 43. So, you know, it's, it's, it's just a constant challenge that people just, they don't think outside that bubble. And I need them to start thinking of that. Sit down and ask questions. Listen to someone and t- listen to their story. And that's one of the reasons why I bring people onto the show who have done these different things. Where you can stop and say, you know what, I can't assume that no one knows artistic swimming. I can't assume that there aren't black coaches out there who have tremendous success. I can't assume that they're not amazing black water polo players or there's cliff divers. I can't assume that anymore because he's proving that wrong. As someone who taught and coached swimming for a long time, I mean, it it oftentimes is much harder to learn how to swim when you're older, right? When you're, when you're younger, when, you know, it's kids tend to learn very, very easily. And I, and I, I, I I had a few adults who like one or two who really wanted to learn how to swim once their kids did. And both of them struggled so much. And I, I remember just like really, really feeling for them. So the fact that you learn at 43 is, is frankly amazing, but it is amazing. And I think also it's like, there's that, I think it's like the access. And then there's also like the, the trauma, right? There's like the generational trauma, you know, and the fear that the fear that that's gotten passed down, um, which, which obviously the fear is tied to, oh, well, like, you know, black people can't swim, right? You know, it's sort of, it's sort of, it's two things. And then, and then, and then the access and the prohibitive expenses is another layer. Um, so actually in order to have any kind of equity, right, all of these things and more need to be addressed and, and, and not really none of these things are being addressed, um, to any, adequate extent at all. I mean, not at all. Um, and, 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 you know, sort of relatedly, um, we, we've talked about a lot, we talked a lot about the black community, but I, I obviously like, this is an all white people issue. Um, and I know, I know you agree with me on this and, and, you know, yet as Simone Manuel says, is something that like I bring up on Twitter and like uh, we talked about in our podcast, we bring up it again and again. And she said that like white people also need to be asked questions about racism and race in sports, right? It's not something that every single black athlete needs to be asked. 
And so what do you think we can do to get to the point where white swimmers are asked the hard questions about racism from sports journalists and commentators, for example, like Rowdy Gaines, who Rowdy Gaines has been such a huge figure within the swimming world and the swimming like commentating world. You know, what would it take to get people such as him to start asking these questions in your, in your, in your view? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, um, you know, when, when, when I think about Rowdy Gaines, I, you know, the hair is, you know, on my neck begin to stand up because I remember when I was watching that um, men's relay, the four by 100 meter relay back in 2008, he made a comment when Cullen Jones was in the water. Now here's Cullen Jones. He got onto this relay. He was the slowest one of the, of the four, but he got on there based, you know, on his qualifying time. And I'm thinking, who cares if he was the slowest? Dude, all those guys, all four guys from each team, you know, all, what was it, like 32 guys who were swimming, you know, from all these different countries, they're the 32 fastest people in the world. He ain't slow. He didn't get there by being slow. He got there because he busted his butt off. And you're making a comment like that. So for me, it's, you know, white swimmers, God love them, you know, especially within USA Swimming. And I know there's a lot that are working on, swim, you know, um, Swimmers for Change and these sorts of things. But really, when they see this happening, when they hear these comments, they've got, they've got, to, they've got to stop it right then and there. They've, they've, they've got to cut it, you know. And, like you, and to your point, when, they, when, when they're asked about, you know, Oh, what does it mean for like, you know, are you excited that, you know, Simone, you know, won the gold medal, you know, um, and including the word, oh, she's the first African-American. They need to correct Mrs. No, she's just the best, man. That's why she won the gold. You know, it's not about her, her race. It's that she worked the hardest and that she had the best race. That's why she's up there on the podium. I'm not. And they need to call people like Rowdy Gaines and other conservative uh, commentators out on that sort of thing. Whether it's malicious on his intent or not, I can't speak to that. But it comes across that way. You know, I think someone said, it's not what you say, it's how it makes a person feel. You know, and, I, and, 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 and people need to understand that, is that, you know, we have to endure that all the time. Like I've said before, when, when, when my friend uh, Mina Roden swam, um, the Santa Barbara Channel Islands from this place, Anacapa Island, back to the mainland. They said, oh, she's the first African-American um, to do it, which was true. She was. More importantly, and I think that Mina would have really appreciated it in some ways, it's just like saying, yeah, let's look beyond that. I was just, I worked hard. I swam hard. Let's concentrate on that. The fact of my race shouldn't be the main focus. I worked hard just like everyone else. I've said this a hundred times before. I said, it doesn't matter if it's 6.2 miles, which is the minimum for a marathon swim, or if it's the infinity amount of miles that you want to go. All of them are hard. And anything can go wrong. You are in a predatory environment if you're out there in the ocean. I've had friends who've had to be pulled because tiger sharks were circling them. So, you know, all bets are off. You've got to deal with the swells, the chop, the wind, the cold, holding your food down. All these different facets and mentally trying to get there. There's a lot of other things that you need to factor in. 
not the fact that, oh, this person's African. Your race ain't got nothing to do with it. You're training and you're busting your butt off. That's what it has to do with it. So when people like the Rowdy Gaines and the others are going to bring up these things, it says, no. I said, she's up there because she's the best. She's the best. The fact that she happens to be black, well, okay, yeah, good on you. We all noticed that. But I also noticed that she dusted my ass when she passed me, you know, to beat me at the wall. They didn't ask um, uh, uh, Alexiak, how does it feel being the first white Canadian to, you know, tie for the Olympic record and the women's 100 meters? They didn't ask her that. They said, how does it feel to, like, you know, to be tied? I'm not sure if they said the first, you know, what the first African-American who's ever done it make history or not. I wouldn't be surprised if some journalists hadn't. But you need to cut that off. So it falls on them because we're, we're we, we got to do that every day. We got to walk out there. We got to fill those questions all the time. We have to go ahead and constantly, like I said earlier, be on our toes because that's what's going to be asked. If we act up about it, they're going to look at us surprised. Why are you so upset? But it would be much more powerful if a Katie Ledecky or a Michael Phelps or, you know, whoever it is, cut them off said, no, they're just good. They're just flat out good. You know, that's why they're on this team. That's why they're up. That's why they were in the race in the first place is because they beat everybody else. And they worked hard and they had that something, that little something that makes them better than the rest of us. We're all elite athletes. You were an elite athlete in the Division I you know, school. doesn't matter if you went to the Olympics or not and stuff like that. You were way better than the rest of them. That's why they brought you there. Not because, oh, well, you know, this is Johanna Mills. She comes from Virginia and all the rest of us. No, that's, that's nonsense. You, you busted your tail off to get to that point. That's what it's going to come down to. These are hundreds of a second that, that, that separate everybody. That doesn't involve race. That involves your technique. That involves your training. That involves your race preparation. Knowing your opponents. All these girls have swam with each other for years so in, you know, in the NCAA. They know each other. They know each other's characteristics. She just figured it out at the right time and she did what she needed to do. And I think you had spoken about it um, you know, on a podcast of your own. You said that Rowdy Gaines and the other announcers weren't even factoring in that Simone was going to win. She was an afterthought. She should just be happy she's there. And when she won, then they had to change their tune. These things need to be called out constantly. And until they do, it'll be more and more normalized. To say, oh, well, Colin Jones is this, and Simone is this, or Leah Neal is this. Yes, they're great swimmers. End of story. Next question. And, you know, I wonder, and this is what I, I said on, on your show, I wonder, like, how do I say? Because, and I had said in your show that, you know, I don't think these these commentators and these journalists realize what they're doing. Like, I just, I don't know if, like, it's an issue of education. I, I don't really know what the issue is. Um, but I, I wonder if they were to start pointing out the whiteness of the athletes, if, if if that would push the conversation to say, you know what, actually, this makes everyone feel uncomfortable. So how about we just, you know, stop talking about race? Um, 
I mean, I don't know if that's the solution or not, but I, I mean, white people don't like talking about their whiteness. They don't like talking about racism, right? Um, because it makes them, for whatever reason, they feel guilty about it because they haven't sort of come to terms with it. They haven't reconciled it. They haven't faced it in the mirror and they haven't faced about, they haven't faced how they have benefited from it. Um, so I, I, I do kind of wonder if they were to start pushing that a little bit harder if the white athletes themselves maybe would realize, oh, this question is really inappropriate. I mean, maybe they would say, asking me about my whiteness is racist because people, you know, white people will say that. They'll say, you're playing the race card and you're, you know, you're racist. Like, no, no, it's not, you know, you know, you're not the only one receiving it and no, it's not. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. I'm just, I'm really kind of torn on, on sort of what could be done. Um, so I, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of, yeah, I'm kind of up in the air about what could be done. And maybe that might push it, push the needle a little further, but I just don't no, know. I, and, and I'm right there with you. I mean, that's what I'm suggesting is just a start, but there needs to be a lot more work. And it needs to come, mm -hmm. you know, from that side of the aisle, as opposed to, like you said, that black people need to somehow make this, make this right. I says, well, I didn't create the problem. You're basically asking me to pay for something I didn't break. You know, that's that's not my responsibility. I mean, it's blame. It's it's victim blaming. Right. If we want to kind of use like a, a term in sort of an age and, you know, ageism adjacent field. Um, but it's yeah, it's blaming bl blaming the victimized, the minoritized communities for their own suffering and, 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 and tasking them with solving it, which is just a, 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 some kind of mental gymnastics, I guess, is kind of how 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 I would say it. Um yeah. And so, so we've kept you a really long time. And so, um, I'm out of questions, but I wanted to see, ask you, you know, is there anything else that you'd like to say? Because, you know, we, when we develop our questions, we miss things because we have sort of our own blinders on. And so is there anything else that you want to say about your podcast, about the topics we've discussed about your working on or anything like that before we yeah, close? Absolutely. And thank you again for having me on. Uh, the one last thing that I did want to say is I have grave concerns for the Tokyo Olympics that are coming up. I have really great concerns. In my personal opinion, they shouldn't happen. I think that the Japanese population is less than 2% vaccinated at this point. And in particular, for those athletes we're going over who are swimmers, it's particularly acute, especially for the parents or anyone else who's coming in there. You're talking about an environment, number one, it's obviously going to be indoors. Number two, as we both know, it's very humid when they heat up those pools. And as we both know this virus is aerosolized very well. So if there's someone who's in there who is not vaccinated, which it sounds like a lot of the people who are residents of Japan won't be, this could be a super spreader event. And my feeling is, and, and I know I'm probably in a minority, is we shouldn't be doing this. It really, really isn't worth it. But the IOC is beyond corrupt. <laughs> You know, I mean, it's, it's a sexist, racist, homophobic, borderline fascist organization that is only seeing the dollar signs because they know that all their marketers are already lined up and they're not going to be able to hold them off for another year. They know that. And my feeling is, you know what, you're just going to have to take one on the chin. I know you're not going to do that, but if you had any integrity, you'd take one on the chin and say, okay, it's canceled. And I feel bad for the athletes because I want them to compete. They're phenomenal people. They've worked so hard. But I want them to compete in some kind of a safe environment. This is a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic. I don't want 
to see anybody having to suffer any more than any of us have had to suffer over since March of last year. It's just not worth it. And that's just my feeling. Absolutely. We totally agree. And absolutely. I mean, it's not a surprise that they are, they, they are pushing forward and I'll be curious, you know, how, I mean, there, there's clearly a lot of resistance in Japan itself. Um, so uh, yeah, I'll just sort of be curious how, how things develop. I mean, Olympic boycotts have been, I mean, boycotts in the sense of like when there's a, like massive resistance in a host country or, or, a, poten- sorry, or a potential host city, those can oftentimes be successful, not every time. So I will, I will be curious, but then again, like, you know, with, with only 2% of the population vaccinated, it's not like they should necessarily be like, you know, demonstrating in the streets and all that other stuff, right? Like, I, I think that's unfair to expect that of them. And obviously there are other ways to kind of protest and show, you know, your discontent with what's going on. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that it will be canceled. And I absolutely, I feel awful for the athletes um, for sure. I mean, they are, they're, you know, losers in this whole thing, but I just, you know, we don't need to be causing any more death that's already happened. And goodness knows in this country, we've been causing plenty of people to die from COVID. Um, so we don't, we, we don't need to be doing that anymore. Yeah. Well, Najee, thank you so, so much for coming on. This is such an amazing conversation and we honestly could have kept going for hours. Um, but I just, I so appreciate you and everything that you're doing. Um, and it's been a pleasure to become a friend, uh, become friendly with you and to get to learn from you and, and, and really just, um, have these enriching conversations. So thank you so much for joining us on the end of sport. It's been my honor, Johanna, and I look forward to hearing more amazing stories that you and Derek and your other co-hosts bring up because you have your finger on the pulse of where sport needs to be, where it needs to realize that sports and politics do mix and that there is no separating the two. And I, I thank you so much for just constantly keeping your finger on the pulse for that. You've been listening to Crossing the Lane Lines, which is produced by the Black Swim Collective at our studios in San Francisco, California. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on Spotify, Anchor, or wherever you receive your podcast. From all of us here, we thank you so much for your support. And remember, no lives matter until Black Lives Matter. In San Francisco, this is Najee Ali, for crossing the lane lines. Signing off.